0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Organic Wine. I'm Adam Hust, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. If you listened to the last episode, you got to know Nick Dugmore a little bit. After talking with Nick, he surprised me by letting me know he wanted to sponsor an episode of the podcast. I gave him an idea of the episodes I had coming up and he chose this one because it features the first winery in the world to get regenerative organic certification. I asked nick for some ad copy that i could use to let people know about his sponsorship and i was again surprised by what he sent rather than talking about himself and his winery and what kinds of wines he makes or where you can buy them he said this we at the stoke wanted to sponsor the beyond organic wine podcast because of the importance of the message that so many of these conversations bring our future generations depend on us And education is the key to a change in our concepts of how we could and should be farming and treating our soils. It doesn't matter your level of education with these topics. As long as you are willing to learn and your heart is in the right place, you will make a difference. And it doesn't matter the size, as it all adds up. Keep pushing and please keep chatting. Let's do this. Yeah, (laughs) I'll just add that you can find out more about Nick's winery and where you can get his wines by going to stokewines.au. And I hope you're as impressed by Nick's ad as I am, and that you feel as strongly as I do that this is the kind of sponsor who deserves our support and patronage. If you haven't listened to Nick's story, please check out his episode from last week. The question that I'm thinking about this week is, do we really need to dumb wine down Or do we need to raise the level of our expectations at a cultural level? The truth about being financially successful in the drinks business is that it has nothing to do with the growth of the fruit or the production of the beverage. It has to do with the marketing. The most financially successful businesses sell a lifestyle brand, not a beverage. They market their beverages by associating it with sexy, cool, chic, fun, glamorous imagery, people, locations, and moments. And this works because our psychology is motivated most powerfully at an emotional level. If you put what we feel up against what we think, what we feel wins out almost every time. So there you go. That's the secret formula to a financially successful wine business. My financial failure as a wine business personally and the cause of our financial failures as a wine industry is that we are asking people to think when we should be asking them to feel. In other words, we've been talking about terroir and organic farming when we should be showing hot smiling young stylish people sharing a steamy sunset hot tub with a bottle of our wine on the ledge. As true as this may be, I'm not sure it has to be the only truth. Notice I've carefully described this as the way to achieve financial success. What other kinds of success might we consider achieving through our businesses? I'm going to make a big assumption here. If you're listening to this, my guess is you actually care about the substance of what goes into a wine. It's important to you to know how wine is grown. You might even care to look beyond a label like organic, to want to know if a wine comes from a system that considers more than just what kind of sprays it uses to grow the grapes. We could have both. We could have amazing beyond organically farmed wine that we market with hot tubs. The problem with the sexy-cool lifestyle marketing approach, whether it embraces a hot tub or some version of chic nightlife, is that any kind of beverage can use it. It encourages us not to care about what's behind our beverage choice. It begs us to be thoughtless. Of course, thoughtlessness is so much easier, more convenient, and quicker than being thoughtful. And I do, honestly, have a lot of sympathy for all of us who have so little time. I wonder who benefits from us being so busy that we want and even need to cut corners in our thinking. After multiple despairing bouts of if you can't beat them, join them, when I consider embracing lifestyle marketing, I begin to ask myself, what kind of culture do I want to strive for? Can I promote my deepest values by simply increasing sales of my regeneratively farmed wine through lifestyle marketing? Do I want to continue to accommodate the lowest common denominator of our primal urges? or do I wanna normalize thoughtful consumption? Is dollars spent by consumers the only measure of success for regenerative agriculture? What about measuring the degree to which we move our culture toward more regenerative thinking? My guest for this episode is Jason Haas. Jason is the partner and general manager of Tablas Creek Winery in Paso Robles, California. I hope that you've heard of Tablas Creek, but if not, let me give you a short list of their environmental leadership in the wine industry. Tablas Creek was the first regenerative organic certified winery in the world. They've been farming organically since their start in 1989, certified organic since 2005, and certified biodynamic since 2015. They employ a full-time shepherd to manage a year-round flock of over 250 sheep that rotationally grazed their 270 acres of vineyards, as well as the woodlands around them. Their winery is 100% solar-powered, and they use their wastewater to feed a native species wetland. They are leaders in reducing glass bottle weights and bringing awareness to the many downsides of heavy glass bottles. And they are pioneering alternative packaging for, for ultra-premium wine. And this is just a short list. We talk about all of this as well as get into the technicalities of no-till and low-till considerations in regenerative viticulture. We talk about how Tablas Creek has brought every grape variety from chateauneuf to Pop to the U.S. through the rigorous quarantining process that can take over a decade, and it's likely that if you've drunk a wine from the U.S. made with a Rhone variety of grape, you can thank Topless Creek for that. Behind all of this, I hope you get a sense of the timeline of the vision for this winery. It extends beyond Jason's or any single person's lifetime. It's a vision of continual incremental improvement, of regeneration over centuries. It's a vision that I hope inspires the way we think about wine. Enjoy. Jason, welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> um, I told you that, you know, I feel remiss for not having you on sooner because of the specialness that is tablas Creek, uh, who you, you know, represent. Um but I, you know my i think my fear is that once i crack that seal i'm gonna have to have you on like you know once a month because of all the incredible stuff that you guys are doing There's just you guys are i mean I, i'll just put it out there that i think what you you guys are leaders in the world globally in the kind of farming and winemaking that you guys are doing i mean wine growing that you're doing that kind of business operations that you're doing and uh, in terms of just earth first earth forward um Amazing stuff, and I wonder if you could just, you know, I mean, I'm happy to list some of the things that I know. But maybe it's easier for you to just list some of the amazing things that you guys have been up to in the past 20 plus years. Oh, just that, like, uh, (laughs) um,
1: you know, well, uh, yeesh, uh, that's that's kind of a lot of pressure, Um, but. Hey, I, I should say first of all that it's even though I haven't been on the podcast, it's not like you haven't you haven't had Toddless Creek represented. You did a, you did a great episode yes. with our shepherd, uh Nathan Stewart a couple of years ago, which um, which I just re-listened to and it was it was terrific. So thank you. Yeah, for that. If anybody hasn't
0: listened to that, please do. It's yeah, I mean that was part of the other reason I, you know, probably didn't reach out. I just didn't want to overexpose to make it sound like it was the Toddless Creek podcast. Um <laughs> <laughs> But that is, a, yeah, fan, I mean, honestly, that was a, a really game-changing conversation that I had with Nathan. I mean, he introduced me to Alan Savory. It was the first time I'd heard about Alan Savory and, you know, started researching rotational grazing. And I mean, there were a whole number of podcasts that spilled out after that. Nathan put me in touch with like Kelly Mulville and just incredible folks up and down the West Coast. And now, you know, around the world that I've uh, found. And yeah, so I mean, it was anybody should go back to that one and listen to it if they haven't. Yeah, it's I mean, he's, he's great. Nathan's
1: Nathan's awesome. <laughs> um, but it's to to go back to the, the question that you originally asked, I, I don't I don't know that I can rattle off <laughs> a list, but I, I could maybe talk about sort of our journey from where we started thinking that really organic uh, organic farming was was a means to an end of showing off terroir to kind of where we are now where we're so much more conscious of not just all of the implications of the choices that we're making but of the urgency of continuing to make more choices maybe that's a maybe that's a, a, a good way to start into this
0: yeah well i mean the the I, I do love that—that that it sort of started as like this is just the best way to reflect terroir if you're trying to make wines of place. Um, but you—you you are in a, what I would say is, you know, a, a climate that is experiencing as much as any are, but some of the extremes of what's happening with our climate more than others to a certain extent. Is that—is that fair to say?
1: Yes and no. Okay. Um, it's interesting right. that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think some of the things that we're seeing, we're seeing more frequent droughts, we're seeing, um, obviously, some record heat waves and high temperatures, though, this year has been cool. Um, And then last winter, we also had record-breaking rainfall. And last, not this past May, but the May before, we had our latest ever frost. So whatever the the kind of climate chaos idea is, I, I think we've certainly seen pieces of that. But Um, it's been interesting for me to talk with our, our, our French partners, the, the parents and realize the extent to which they're seeing things that we aren't, um, I mean the, and and I should start, I should start probably with a little bit of history because for people who don't know, um, Tablas Creek is co-founded and still co-owned and co-run by two families. One of them is my family. Uh, my dad was Robert Haas. He founded an importing company called Vineyard Brands, introduced a whole bunch of great wines, mostly from France, but not exclusively into the U.S. market. And one of the families whose wines he introduced was the Perrin family from Chateau de estel um, And the the Perrins are are who we decided to to, to launch a kind of a riff on chateauneuf du Pop in California with. And that was what would become Tablas Creek eventually when we bought this property in 1989. But um, listening to them talk about the things that they're dealing with over there made me go in and do a little bit of digging into what some of the, the more advanced climate models are suggesting about where the impacts of climate change are likely to be the greatest. And one of the things that was, I mean, it makes sense if you think about it, but was a little surprising to me is that the, the Mediterranean coast of Europe is one of the areas which looks like it's going to accumulate heat at roughly double the rate globally. So if the temperature goes up one degree globally, you can expect the Mediterranean coast of, of France and Spain and Italy to go up two degrees. Right. Um, and I think that's largely because the Mediterranean is a relatively shallow sea and Europe is warmed by the Gulf Stream, which mm. is supercharged as, as the climate gets warmer. So you you end up just with more heat accumulating in that particular part of the world. And they're dealing with things that we're not like, how do you harvest Grenache at a potential alcohol of less than 16%? We don't have to, we don't really have to worry about that. I mean, we're, we're seeing roughly, I mean, we're seeing roughly similar sugar levels to where we've always seen. We're just seeing the arrival and the, the patterns and the, and the, the the long-term trends of things like, rainfall and storms shifting in ways that give us some reason to doubt that a lot of our historical data is really all that predictive of what we'll see in the future
0: yeah well you might be experiencing a little bit of how to deal with things uh, that are late ripening this year at least right i saw some some create creative uh, use of straw mats and russan
1: yeah. I mean, Roussan's always a, always a struggle at the end of harvest. Um, and this year with it already being November and the Roussan still not being ripe and our days already getting short and we've had three frosts here already. We're, we're trying to come up with uh, like, what can we do to get this Roussan just over the, over the hump and, and ready to start fermenting. So, so yeah, laying them out on straw um, as we would if we were making dessert wines in the style is one of the relatively limited number of tools we have in our, in our, in our toolkit. So yeah, that's what we've been doing. We've got one batch of Roussan coming off the straw today and another one going on there. Um, nice. Yeah, that's we're right. hoping it gives us just that little bit of extra, extra concentration and ripeness.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, you guys have been certified organic since
1: you started in the nineties, right? We've been farming organically since we started in 1989, Farm. but we didn't, get certified until the national organic program standards came into play. So we didn't bother with certification until 2003. Okay. Um, But this all comes out of our connection with what the Perens do at Bocastel. They've been fully organic since the 1950s. Um, And they only use chemicals for like a decade after World War II, when like every government agency and every viticultural association was basically saying like, this is how you become a modern farmer you that, right. this is how you are going to produce at better yields with less disease pressure and be more responsible to your neighbors and I mean it was there was such a push towards this kind of modern um, chemical input sort of farming yeah. and it in the in the mid50s Jacques Perrin just decided that this didn't feel right he he felt like this wasn't the way that he'd learned to farm from his father and decided that he would he would go a year without using any of the chemicals at Bocastel and was blown away with how much more the wines that he made that year tasted to him like Bocastel, like that place, than what he'd been doing for the previous decade. And for them, it was like, that was it. That was, that was the moment and they haven't used chemicals ever since. And so when we started, it was really that kind of lens that we were thinking about our farming and that this was the right way to give us the best possible chance to show off our terroir. Um, well, all of the other stuff was considered great, like great that we're not uh, not putting chemicals out there that we would worry about or that we we would want to worry about exposing our team or our neighborhood to. But that was definitely secondary to the idea of, of farming organically as a way of amplifying terroir. Yeah, that's great.
0: And then you started biodynamic farming as well.
1: Yeah, and, and that was pretty directly out of trying to figure out really if we're trying to ampl- amplify terroir, what's the best way to do it. And and in practical terms, the way that a lot of organic farming is, is executed in wine and, and, and outside is that it's concerned with the replacement of chemical inputs with non-chemical alternatives. Right. So you're still you're still putting on inputs, you're still bringing in organic fertilizer, you're still spraying, but you're spraying with like soaps or oils or something which is less systemic than a, than a chemical, um, chemical spray would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were trying to identify which of those inputs we could eliminate and instead create an alternative that would come from this property. So instead of instead of organic fertilizer, like could we create our own fertility from our own cover crops? And and we felt like we could get part of the way there, but not all the way there. Like, well, what if we integrated some sheep? And we had our first dozen sheep in 2012. um, And we're super impressed with what that did to the the health of the cover crops after the sheep had been grazing there and, and what happened to the sections of the vineyard that we were able to graze. So that became a that became a whole thing of its own. And we we built up that flock from a dozen sheep in that, that first year to 250 sheep last year and had to hire a shepherd and and get all into this rotational grazing and mob grazing. and And all of that then led us to, well, how do we foster other sorts of biodiversity in the property? So if we don't want to have to release beneficial insects or spray with the soaps and the oils, how do we create habitat that will naturally attract those beneficial insects? Um, How do we create an environment where they can winter over and, and, and I think even more importantly, summer over in this dry climate? So we started leaving sections with native vegetation and then planting other sections that we knew with, with plants that we knew would attract the things that we wanted and then irrigating that even as we moved away from irrigating the rest of the vineyard so that we could keep things blooming year round and create habitat for the, the bugs that we wanted. And so it was, it was sort of this idea of trying to create this closed system, trying to eliminate all of the outside inputs that we could that led us to biodynamics. And I, I think that's sort of it may be a different way than a lot of people think of what biodynamics is all about, because biodynamics has this reputation. I mean, the stuff that people know about it tends to be the more mystical stuff, the... Yeah. the cow horns and lunar calendars. Yeah, cowhorns, lunar calendars, um, cycles of the moon, um, whatever, all of, all of that stuff. And I remember hearing a talk from John Williams of, of Frog's Leap, where he basically... Dismissed all of that in two sentences and said all of that was a distraction from what really mattered about biodynamics, which was creating this biodiverse ecosystem that reestablished a plant's ability to make sense of its environment. Mm-hmm. I mean that really resonated with me, and we we actually were doing all of this ecological stuff um, without thinking that it would lead to biodynamic certification and. We we ended up inviting down the the guy who oversaw certification for the West Coast for Demeter in 2015 I think 2015 or 2016 and and basically laid out to him like here's all the stuff that we're doing with the with the biodiversity and soil health um, integrated grazing all of that like we we we're happy to do the preps but we don't. Like we're not sure the extent to which those really matter. And there's some pieces like the biodynamic calendar where you're supposed to pick on certain days and um, prune on certain days and all of that, that we really don't like, we we think it can be actively counterproductive and just tell us if, if we have to do all of that to get certified, then we won't bother. Um, But we just want to get an assessment of where we are and the guy said, like, honestly, if you want to ignore all of the calendar stuff, go for it. We don't care. Um, we do need you to be a little more um, systematic in the way that you apply the preps. We, we feel like that's an important piece. But ultimately, we want you inside the biodynamic program because we think that the things that you're doing with, with soil health, biodiversity, and and integrated livestock grazing, like this is so valuable for people to know about that we want you in the program so that we can bring people here and show them what you're doing. And we were like, "Oh, oh okay, great. Uh, well, we will be more um, happy to be more uh, rigorous on the application of the preps. The preps, I think, are are to the last one things that can't do you any harm and almost certainly do some good. Um, and we believe in certification. We believe in that that validation. That uh, having to conform to a." to a, a rigorous standard, um, that it shows something. So I, we did.
0: Can I, let me ask you a question about that. Yeah. Just as a, a, a devil's advocate. So I, I too, like I, I, I struggle with this idea of certification and, and it's important and it's, you know, whatever. And, and the strongest argument that I've heard, and I wonder how you would respond to this against certification is why should I have to pay to show that I'm doing the right thing, shouldn't you know? Conventional farmers have to get certified for all of the chemical stuff that they spray on, into our wine,
1: or <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> um, I, and I certainly am sympathetic to that to that argument, um, but it's not the way the world works. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I I tend to be pretty pragmatic in um, in my approach to things and. I, I do find at least that the a, a, a pretty high percentage of the people who talk about well, we just don't get certified because of the expense or because um, like I, I don't believe in paperwork and all of that. like if you look in detail, they're also cutting corners and maybe wouldn't qualify for certification or at the very yeah. least are hedging that they want to be able to do something that wouldn't. Be allowed under the certification program should the the specific conditions that might mandate that occur. Yeah, that's um, that's been my experience as well. Um, so I do think that like being held to a standard that that you have a third party validating, um, it, I think it's meaningful, and I think. I Encouraging people to be inside that system, particularly given that, like, really the paperwork is not that hard. It's not that expensive. Right. Um, if you have the capability to do it, and you're already farming that way, um, I, 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 I'm a believer in that that yeah. that third party seal. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it. But it also sounds like you sort of backed into it, and I, I kind of love that idea of. You like realize just by following, you know, ecological principles, you have, you know, ticked off every box in a certification program, and then you're like, <laughs> oh, well, let's just
1: do that. It, yeah, it does sometimes feel like that, and and I know. So with biodynamics, we did have to do a little more of the of the prep stuff. We had to buy another right. quad in order to to handle the, the the volume of the of the preps and the application that we needed to do, um, but like we really were most of the way there. Um, And we had a similar experience when we were approached in 2018 to be a part of the new regenerative organic certification, where I mean, they were looking for people to join the pilot program who were already basically farming in the way that they supported, because what they were looking for was feedback on how these overarching regenerative organic principles were, could be, should be applied to Different types of crops, so they didn't want a, a winery that was farming chemically to to have to go through all the transition period. They wanted somebody who was basically doing the stuff that they cared about, who could give them feedback on on the on the right. protocols. So um, when we when we joined that program, it's it's essentially four audits, though they've streamlined it a little bit now. But there's basically an organic certification, which was that was easy. We were already doing that. There's an animal welfare certification, um, and the the animal welfare certifier who who came basically spent half an hour riding around with Nathan and was like, "You guys are so far ahead of what the what the gold standard is for this that like I'm going to tell you now that I'm going to pass you. But I just want to see the rest of the stuff you're doing." Right. <laughs> um, there was the the um like the overarching like resource use reduction kind of piece of the of the roc standard where they said well you're basically doing the right stuff you just need to be keeping better records need to be doing more soil testing you need to be um measuring the impact of the things that you're doing and we're like okay that makes a lot of sense to us Um, and then there was the farm worker fairness piece which was um the place where we had to make the most changes just because it wasn't wasn't involved in any of the certifications that we were that we were doing we were already paying our farm workers a living wage we were already we I mean their their working conditions were already good but there were a couple of things that they mandated that we do that we sort of realized afterwards like why well, we should have been doing this for for decades and one of those was a a a, a weekly, I don't think they mandate that it's weekly, but they mandate that it be regular, but uh, we we decided to do a weekly roundtable discussion with our full-time vineyard crew, as well as our viticulturist, our vineyard manager, and then Neil, our um, director of winemaking, and basically talk through what we'd done the last week, talk about what we were planning to do the next couple of weeks, and really go around the table and get everyone to to give feedback, which is a very non-hierarchical way of, 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 of working and was pretty foreign to our vineyard crew, um, even though that they've been full-time employees, many of them full-time employees out here at Tablas Creek for two decades. Um, and what we realized was that once you sort of established the established new levels of trust and sort of broke down some of the just the historical barriers and the generational barriers and cultural barriers of, of, wait, I'm supposed to give feedback here. We saw all of this interesting stuff. Like for example, our equipment stopped breaking and it wasn't, I don't think that things were, things were being treated any differently. It was that all of a sudden, instead of people thinking, I better not say anything, I might get blamed for, for something going wrong. uh, There was enough trust that was built up that, we would hear about stuff when it started to go wrong instead of after, like, it terminally wasn't working. Right. Um, which was super cool. Like, that was really interesting to see. And then the other impact was that we started seeing, like, the guys on our crew, again, who've been here for for a long time in many cases, like, coming out on their weekends and bringing their families out to show them the things that, that they were working on. Um, and, like, just watching that develop was was amazing so so we did have to implement some new stuff for the for the farm worker fairness piece of what we did but but yeah i mean there was a lot of the in terms of the actual farming um what we were doing in the on the ground in the ground um with the vines we were sort of chosen to be a part of the pilot program because we already were doing most of the stuff they wanted right yeah
0: but yeah, I mean, nothing to sneeze at being the first regenerative organic certified vineyard in the world. <laughs>
1: no, it's something we're super proud of. Uh, not, <laughs> I'm try- not trying to sneeze at it. Um, I, I, I love that it essentially takes all of the soil health and biodiversity pieces of biodynamics and separates it from a lot of that mysticism stuff that I really agree with with, with John Williams that it's it's a distraction Right. um and probably prevents the uptake of this kind of farming because people are like yeah, right I'll activate cosmic energies yeah sure like you'll you'll catch me doing that when hell freezes over like right. um so having having all of that updated without some of the kind of distracting philosophical metaphysical language is helpful but also, having it updated to take into account all of the the, like the real advances in soil science and the understanding that people have of what's going on with the networks under the soil that like even 30 years ago they really didn't have. So um, having a conscious focus on things like those microbial networks, um, the fungal activity under the soil, the the, the benefits you get from reducing tillage to help allow those networks to grow, the, the fact that this allows your soil to break down the raw materials that, that may be applied or may just come naturally from the things that you're growing or the grazing that you're doing and turn that into the building blocks for your, for your crop, whatever it happens to be. Like the, the, the advances in, in understanding kind of that modern approach to what really great farming is really appeals to us, as does the fact that it ties in these things that were formerly outside of the, the certification programs, like a requirement to reduce your use of shared resources like groundwater and non-renewable energy. I mean, those, those weren't things that that farmers were particularly concerned about in the late 19th century when when biodynamics was being written about, like resource scarcity wasn't a thing. Um so having that updated for the for the modern age and then having it include the things like farm worker fairness and animal welfare just makes it feel like it is a gold standard for for great farming not just for your land but for your neighbors for your community for the people who work there and for the broader environment in a way that no previous certification was
0: got it yeah and i mean you brought up a couple things that i would love to dig into a little bit more but um specifically the the tillage aspect of soil health i know um you you were helping to shape this program and i think you gave them some feedback about you know when and if tillage is always bad and things like that and i i'd love to know where you guys are with that now because i know that's a a very big you know hot topic and and i think they went from no-till to reduce till (laughs) in terms of their requirements or, you know, their sort of encouragement largely due to feedback from you in that certification. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I I think the idea, there there are two ideas behind no-till that make a a ton of sense, a ton of intuitive sense um, that I think are fundamental. One is that you want to avoid bare ground whenever you can. Um, And that's partly because it's a missed opportunity for photosynthesis. And and really what you want your land to be doing is um, from a, from a broader climate perspective is you want there to be plants on it, leaves on it that are going to be turning that solar radiation and the atmospheric carbon dioxide into carbohydrates. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's a good thing for, for everyone. Um, And then those carbohydrates, you're, you're doing what you can to try to, Capture as much of that that carbohydrate mass in the soil, so it does positive things rather than the atmosphere, where it has negative impacts. So that's one thing which I think makes intuitive sense about about reduced tillage. The the other is what I mentioned briefly before, where you're trying to avoid disrupting those networks between roots and mycorrhizal fungi and microorganisms um, in the soil, where every time you do a you sort of do a deep till and you turn deeper layers over and put them on top and the, the shallower layers get put down deep, you end up destroying a lot of that, a lot of that life um, in the, that's in the soil. So it, that becomes then counterproductive and you start re-releasing that. You, you end up with decay of whatever the organic matter is, those roots, and that gets re-released into the atmosphere. So I think both of those are, are, are really important. The, 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 Downside of having it be just an inflexible requirement that you you can't till is that in a place like California, that leaves you with very little in the way of recourse against things like gophers and ground squirrels whose networks can just end up exploding um, and you can end up losing a lot of your your vines to those underground rodents. Um, There's also transitional challenges where if you have a crop which has been essentially accustomed to being to not having competition with um, weeds and other things in an arid climate um, the shock of introducing all of a sudden all of this competition um, can have some unintended consequences so essentially where we are at the moment is we are with the sections where we have the ability to irrigate, um, so our, our, our trellised, closer-spaced blocks, which are basically our oldest oldest blocks, um, those we have been no-till um, within the rows um, for the last five-plus years. And we just do a little bit of um, kind of in right under the vine, kind of clean up um, with, a, with a shallow... Um, tractor attachment that's uh, called a tornasol. It's really like a rotary tiller, slow-moving rotary tiller that just tills a couple of inches below the surface without turning stuff over. Mm-hmm. Um, and those vines are old enough that we don't really worry so much about the gophers because the roots are down deep enough; they're down into the into the calcareous layers that the gophers don't really love. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're relatively protected. The dry farmed blocks we have. Older dry farm blocks that we've continued to do tilling on because, again, of, of the worries we have about shocking those blocks with introducing um, a lot of new competition and, and information from neighbors who've tried to do it and lost a lot of vines because of it. We have a few smaller, old, older, not quite as old, but older um, dry farm blocks that we have been doing our own transition to no-till to see how that goes and then we have some new dry farm blocks that we've planted no-till so that we don't have to worry about a transition at all that we've planted with the expectation that there's going to be kind of a permaculture of um, of other stuff growing in around it and the grapevines can 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 grow from being newly planted with the experience of of competition and that's all still early enough the oldest of those blocks is only three years old so it's still early enough i don't know that we have a lot in the way of conclusions but we're trying to see how far we can push um, away from tilling without without opening us up to risks that we consider like potentially devastating So, uh, it's, uh, that's sort of where we are. We're, we're, we're in this process where we're probably at this point, if you look in terms of acreage, probably 75% no-till, um, and the other 25%, we're trying to do some experiments to see how we get there safely.
0: Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just being on the East coast recently, uh, you know, I heard some farmers talking about who, who really don't like to till, but were because of the amount of rain that they had and the fact that they had to, that meant they had to spray extra. So you have, you know, more tractor passes on wetter soil. They were thinking about running a, like a key line plow through between the rows just to create some aeration. So not do any like rototilling, but just stick a knife down into the soil to break up some of that compaction from this year. Um, yeah. So I've, you know, I've heard mixed things about that as well. I mean, of course you cut mycorrhizal connections and things like that in the soil, but you know, the, it's that give take, like if, if the soil is starved for oxygen, uh, that might be a benefit anyway. Like the the net, be- it might be a net benefit.
1: Yeah, no, I, we, I, I agree. We agree. I mean, we tend to do some key line plowing, um, before the rainy season anyway, um, which we do perpendicular to the slope of the hills on our steeper slopes, so that it slows down the flow of water downhill and mm-hmm. encourages it to soak in rather than running off. Yeah. And we feel like, again, the, the, the small amount that we're breaking up those networks is is worth the other benefits and i I don't feel like the roc protocols have any objection to to things like that um it's not as though whatever you can't ever break the ground um it's that the more that you are allowing those sorts of underground networks to flourish the the greater the benefits will be Um, right and and i think that's i think that's pretty hard to argue with but i also think that there are ways of of intervening in a in a positive way that don't destroy those networks.
0: Well, I wanted to ask, a, go back to a couple of things, but gophers. So, what else have you done to control <laughs> for gophers? That, it, curse at them thing. a
1: lot. Um, you will say again? Curse at them a lot. <laughs> yeah, I um, have feeling. Uh, so, we, we have 43 owl boxes scattered around the property. Uh huh um they certainly help the the challenge one of the challenges with gophers is that they're nocturnal so all of these lovely hawks and eagles that we have flying around don't do a whole lot of good against them
0: uh but are nocturnal i thought you were gonna okay got it i always Uh, thought gophers were i always see them out during the day running you know you you drive up to a tasting room and you almost like run over one on your way down the driveway kind of thing
1: those I, i at least in my experiences those are probably ground squirrels
0: oh ground squirrels very different okay sorry
1: um, uh, also horrible um right <laughs> but uh but no active during the day um so that's one thing we also do a lot of trapping um we have a couple okay. of guys whose main job in the summer when there's not a ton of other stuff going on is just to set an empty gopher traps and they i mean they'll catch like 60 70 gophers a day um and the peak of the summer and you still barely keep up I've, i don't yeah, know i'm open to amazing. other ideas i would love to like I, i'm we have feral cats that we feed to to keep rodents at bay around the winery. I'm wondering if we can like somehow attract feral weasels um, Ooh, yeah. or more snakes or yeah, uh, I don't know uh, that's gophers are a real are a real problem and I, we, of course I don't feel like we've come up with the right aren't solution
0: necessarily yes. the most exciting <laughs> for humans. <laughs> right really rattlesnakes are probably your native snake spe- species there right well you probably have some other good ones right king snakes
1: yeah i mean we certainly see rattlesnakes out here um, yeah. but yeah i mean uh, do, do i want to fill our vineyard with thousands of rattlesnakes i'm not sure that that's really the great the great solution either
0: well, I'm thinking now of like farmed table gopher barbecue type thing. Like this sounds <laughs> like a real <laughs> potential Neither you than me added value. It uh, in the tasting room there, a little, a little uh, right next to the,
1: the the freezer case where we sell cuts of lamb. This will be like right, very right. small cuts of
0: gopher <laughs> gopher tacos. I'm, I'm <laughs> all over. <it>. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, another. I, I mean, you brought up um, sort of. You know, the problematic thing with organic uh, similar to you know it's the same mentality as as conventional just switch swapping out sprays, some of which still aren't that great for the world. Um, generally speaking, they might be a little less
1: insult to the to the earth. but. Um, I think they're significantly to. less insult to the earth, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that they're like the best end solution. Right, right. So, are you
0: experimenting with reduced sprays or no sprays at all in any sections? No, not particularly. I don't know that okay. that's really
1: our goal. Okay. Um, I mean, we're trying to we're trying to spray thoughtfully. Like, I mean, uh, we're we're choosing to use we use a lot of compost tea. We're using a lot of biodynamic preps um, where the, those impacts are, are going to be positive. I mean, we'll, we have been able to reduce the amount of sulfur that we spray in the vineyard pretty significantly by using compost tea and just by the fact that we're in a place that mildew is not usually a huge pressure. Um, but I, I mean, I, again, I don't know that our goal is particularly to not spray. Our goal is to is to choose the right sort of thing to spray and to choose things that are going to have if at all possible positive consequences on the life in the vineyard not negative right
0: yep and i'm going i'm going deep now because i remember at one point this thing that sort of seemed strange to me we were in the middle of i think the rain this winter you know we just had this this crazy rainy winter for california and I remember you guys did a post about um, bringing the bring the flock into the barn, and it struck me as strange because I, you know, I, you know, I, I know people that are farming in contexts like North Dakota and upstate New York who specifically don't bring their flock in. And so I, th- I texted some question about, you know, why do you guys bring the flock in? And and the answer was something about this is one of the, you know, the five needs or the five requirements for, you know, animal welfare, which is shelter for the animals. Is that, I mean, can you talk about that at all? I don't know if you, you know, yeah. like if sure yeah, sure that important. Sure, sure, sure. It, it, I, I love the idea of using you know, hardy stock that can, that is meant to be outside year round, especially in a, you know, especially in Paso Robles where I know it gets cold, but it's certainly not like North Dakota and upstate New York. So I'm just curious, like,
1: yeah. No, for us, the biggest reasons are that if it is, if the soil is really saturated, um, and the sheep are out there and we, we keep them in a fairly tight area in order to, in order to just keep them grazing equally. Um, they end up compacting the soil to an unacceptable degree. So Mm -hmm. we don't want them out there when the soil is really saturated. Um, and certainly not before the cover crops have a chance to get well established because they end up turning it into this like compacted mud pit, um, which does not then regrow. Um, so typically what we'll do is we'll pull them out. I mean, we'll leave them out if it's a, it's a modest rainstorm, um, but if we've had, like, the the peak of this winter, we had 20 inches of rain in 21 right. days. And, right. um, like, it was so wet out there that literally, I mean, you could see the impact of where we'd had the sheep um, for, for for months afterwards because they wow. they sort of trod things down into mud. Um, right. So, no, we're trying to get them out of there while it's so wet that they're going to compact the soil um, and then right. get them back into the vineyard as soon as we can after that. Right.
0: Got it. Well, okay. Now those answer, it's <laughs> great, great. These are my little fascinations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now you, uh, I, I just want to establish that, you know, I'm growing Tobless Creek clone of Syrah in my front yard vineyard. And, you know, that it is a fabulous Syrah clone. And uh, I mean, despite the fact that I've had some issues with it with uh, Powdery Mildew this year, I mean, it's no different than any other vinifera that way. But um, you guys essentially brought over every single grape from Chateauneuf to Pop, right? At great yeah, extent. We have, in and fact, at this pun, point, like this text, brought over
1: every single one.
0: Uh, yeah. it. I mean, like many of the clones, like, I mean, I, I don't know that most people realize, like, if you're drinking you know, Grenache, Syrah, Morved, and the whole other list of things anywhere in America, it's quite possible that it that is possible because of Toddless Creek.
1: Yeah, I mean that was that was one of the things we realized early on is that if we wanted to be able to replicate the diversity of the, the Boca style vineyard, like we needed to bring a whole bunch of stuff in that had never been used in America before. Um, and like that was, that was a fairly easy choice. Like if we knew we wanted Grenache Blanc or Kunwaz or Pickpool or, or even Roussan, like that, that wasn't here. So we had to bring it in. I think the larger question was, do we bring in new clones of the things that are already here? Um, so right. like Morvedra, Grenache, Syrah, Viognier, Marsan, those were, those were here already. Right. And we ended up deciding that, yes, we did because we weren't, like, there wasn't a lot of information that was out there about where those other clones had come from. We weren't confident that they had been chosen for quality rather than productivity. Cause if you look historically at how Rhone varieties were used in California, particularly Grenache was used for bulk jug wine in the central Valley more than it was anything else. So like, could it get ripe and get make sweet grapes at 20 tons an acre? Yes. Good. Okay, great. Plant it. Um, <laughs> Right. So we decided to, to take advantage of the fact that we had French partners who had all of these varieties and multiple clones of many of the varieties in their own vineyard and use that as our starting point. Um, and one of the decisions we made early on, what did I say, we, I was in high school, I was not making this decision, but one of the decisions my dad and, and Jean-Pierre Francois Perrin made early on was... Not to try to keep these vines proprietary, but instead to make them available to anybody who wanted to buy and plant them, because we felt that the biggest thing that was holding back the category of Rhone varieties in California was that the clones themselves either weren't available or weren't great. Um, And that if we could get these higher quality clones into circulation, that would help the whole category thrive. Um, and so that was how we ended up in the nursery business of selling vine cuttings. And, and we've sold something like 5 million grapevine cuttings to 600 vineyards from Washington state to Texas, um, including a hundred just here in Paso Robles. And so I think like it's really had the impact that we hoped it would. Um, and that, that I think in some ways obscures the fact that it was a pretty big decision to make at the beginning to, to, to set aside what could have been a competitive advantage um, and instead try to think of the the health of the whole category. So I'm proud of, proud to I'm proud of what that nursery piece of the business has, has allowed to flourish.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, I, one of those pieces that I don't, you know, amongst all the other amazing things that you're doing, I think can sometimes get left by the wayside that, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, the, the significance of that to the American wine industry and anybody who likes these grapes and the wine made from them—it's—it's it's, it's a you know bringing them over here can be a decade-long process for a single clone, right? Like you can it yeah. has to go or longer. Through. Yeah, I mean we we just or got longer, yeah. the
1: the the most recent batch of imports that we started in two thousand and three. Like we finally got the last of those grafted into the vineyard in twenty nineteen. So sixteen yeah. years later, it had finally been gone yeah. through four rounds of cleanup at UC Davis and been declared virus-free and then released to us and propagated and finally had enough to plant in the vineyard. So yeah, it can be a very long process if, um, if things need to be cleaned up.
0: You, you, you must have a sort of long view perspective on this business. <laughs>
1: um, I, I do. I, I, I inherited that. I, <laughs> I, uh, I think often of my dad who started all of this in his mid-60s knowing that he was doing it in a way that they wouldn't even have wine to, to 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 show people for a decade and that like he probably wouldn't even be around at the time when the vineyard sort of was getting to the age that the french would start to take seriously um, exactly. and i think that's about as good a definition of optimism as one that 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 I can think of is being willing to start a project that you think is worthwhile, knowing that you may never see it's, it's, it's kind of apex. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been out here for 21 years at this point. Um, I got, I was lucky enough to get to work with my dad for the first 15 of them. Um, But yeah, I mean, this was definitely conceived of as a kind of a generational and potentially kind of category defining project. And that, that was, that was liberating, I think, in in some ways at the beginning, in that, like we knew we weren't trying to turn a profit on this in the first know, like fifteen years. I actually saw the initial business plan um, a couple of years ago, and like it showed us breaking even for a calendar year for the first time in year thirteen. Like that's if everything went right, and you you know how optimistic like initial mm-hmm. business plans before you've even. Broken ground are so. If everything went right, we were going to have to put in money for the first dozen years before it became at least self-sustaining. Like, let alone paying you back the stuff that you already invested. So right. we were we were able to look at things with the perspective of like, what would we wish we had done if we had a generation's perspective on this, and, and use those sorts of decisions to to help us answer questions
0: yeah well I mean you said optimistic, but I almost feel like there's uh, something more it's almost more altruistic um <laughs> like it's thinking about somebody besides yourself um you know to be able to do that and I wish there was more of that in wine um and and everything uh frankly um but you, i mean some of some of what you guys are doing that we haven't talked about if we're you know, <laughs> i'm I'm ticking off these things in in my mental list in my head but <laughs> the uh <laughs> the the work that you've done in terms of containers and, and, you know, if it, if it isn't news to anybody, I think anybody listening to this podcast, it's not news, but, you know, just the enormous percentage of wine's carbon footprint that is owed to glass bottles and shipping in glass bottles. And you guys have really tackled that in multiple fronts. If, if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah. So people probably don't realize it, but there like, it is, it depends a little bit on, where the wine is going, but a pretty good general um, general figure is that half of of California wines' carbon footprint is attributable to the bottle.
0: Right.
1: So, if we're serious about a, a lower carbon future, then we need to we need to look there. Um, that's where the biggest savings are going to be. So we've we've tried to address it in a bunch of different ways. We've tried to I mean one of the first things we did was was move to lightweight glass more than a dozen years ago um, which at the time was very much uh, kind of opposite to the trend a lot of a lot of California wineries were going heavier and heavier with their glass and we just felt like it was inconsistent with all of the other things that we were doing and we reached out to our customers and asked them what they looked for in a bottle and we were expecting Kind of a, a split between people saying, oh, I really, I, I, I love the look and the feel of these these larger bottles and people saying, oh, please do what's right for the environment. Right. And instead, like 80% of the responses we got were, please just give me something that fits in my wine rack. <laughs> um, and that gave us a lot of clarity in, in in addressing this. We're like, oh, right, think about this in terms of utility. Right. Um, and you realize that those big Bottles—they're negative utility at almost every level. They're—they're they're yeah. more expensive. Um, they're heavier to ship. They're heavier to lift. They—they they don't fit in racks. They take up more space, and they don't do anything in terms of 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 helping a wine age any better. They have zero impact there. So anyway, so we moved to lightweight glass a dozen years ago, um, which, again, I think if a winery wants to make a first step towards towards a a lower carbon and also less expensive. Um, operation, the the move to lightweight glass will save you ten percent of your carbon footprint, just sort of right there in one one fell swoop. Right. Um, but beyond that, like we're trying to think of the 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 situations, the environments in which wine maybe doesn't need a glass bottle at all. Yeah. So, for again, about a dozen years, we've been selling or offering the Tatal de Tablas tier of what we do, which is basically the wines that we make for restaurants and wine bars to pour by the glass. We've been offering them in reusable stainless steel kegs through a partnership with Free Flow Wines um, up in in Napa. So that's a zero waste package, both in terms of the packaging, because the the stainless steel kegs get returned and, and washed and sterilized and reused. And also in terms of the wine, which is an important thing for restaurants to consider because a lot of restaurants toss out a decent percentage of their by the glass wine because if it's been open for a day or two and they're down to the bottom of the bottle they're not going to keep it over another night they're just going to dump it and start with fresh bottles um so that's been that's i think been really encouraging it's not a huge piece of what we do it's like 10 percent of our production that we do in in kegs but again if if it doesn't need to be in a bottle um like why why use all those resources to put it in a bottle Right. Um, and we transitioned our tasting room to pouring all of our tasting room samples out of keg at the beginning of this year. And that's another oh, case, amazing it's an idea. I wish I'd had a decade earlier, but um, <laughs> that's, um, that's going right. to save us something like 10,000 bottles a year from ever needing to get made. Um, it's going to save us wine and cost wasted wine from, from open bottles, corked bottles, all of that. So that was a, that was something that I think is, is worth doing. And then, Last year, we and this was spurred by a carbon footprint self uh, self audit that I did and published on our blog. Um, one of the one of the figures that I shared was from the California Sustainable Wine Growing Alliance, which showed the different carbon footprints of the different weights of glass bottles. And it included as a fourth line on this on this chart the much lower carbon footprint of the three liter. Boxes. So essentially, the bag in box where there's a little like a plastic or mylar bag inside of a cardboard box. Um, and that is an 84% savings of carbon footprint over four glass bottles. And yeah. I, I just sort of dismissed that in the blog that I wrote because the most expensive boxes of wine out in the market, if you go and look at them, are like 30 bucks or maybe 35 bucks. And like our least expensive bottle is 28. So four of those bottles. Like it's just it just seems so out of line with what what would be a possible price point for it that I just dismissed it and I had a friend comment on my on my own personal Facebook page when I shared the blog saying, "Hey, don't you think that Tablas Creek could be the winery that would change people's perceptions on this?" <laughs> um, and I thought about it for for quite a while and decided he was right and so <laughs> so we did we we uh, released. Our first wine in the in the boxes last spring whatever not not 2023 but during tw- spring of 2022 did the mm-hmm. patillon de tablas rose and I at that point we made 324 boxes and just released it to our our mailing list and to our wine club and I was I was thinking we'd probably sell out in a month and I was hoping like if this was a big success um, it would be a week and we, we sold out in four hours. And I got to spend the next week responding to frustrated people who were like, man, I wasn't at my computer and like it sold out already. And so we felt like that was a pretty significant proof of concept uh, that people were willing to reconsider um, maybe their, their prejudices about the, the boxed wine package. And we, we continued that with the Petaline Blanc and the Petaline Red last year. We did it again this year. We scaled it up a little bit more and then, um next year our plan is to increase it again kind of double the amount that we're doing and release a little bit into a handful of markets for uh, for some wholesale so so for some independent retail and maybe a few restaurants who would love to use it to pour out the glass but don't have a don't have the infrastructure for a keg system so right um i think that there's potential potential in there and there's potential in things like the um the the bottle reuse programs that a couple of places are starting to roll out. There's a there's one called Rivino in Oregon that is the first one that seems to be off the ground. Yeah, um yep. there's a company in California called Conscious Container that's trying to do the same thing. I think yeah. there's a lot of potential in that, but there's also a lot of logistical hurdles to to deal with. There but, are, yeah. but yeah, packaging yeah. is packaging is is the whatever, eight hundred pound gorilla in the room of of wine really trying is. to get to a lighter, lighter carbon footprint. Yeah, we we have Oom down here in
0: uh, Los Angeles trying to do a reuse program as well. O O M. Mm, um, cool. Check them out. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I was one of those uh, frustrated customers, but you know, <laughs> it did a, I did get a really nice email from you in response saying something like, "You snooze, you lose, sucker." Um, just <laughs> that sounds out. like <laughs> <laughs> <I'm just laughs> totally good. When when or how did your sort of ecological consciousness individually? sort of dawn. I mean, I, obviously, you grew up as, you know, sort of like a vineyard brat. And, and this is something that was, you know, handed down to you. And, um, and I mean that in the nicest way. You know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, you, you know, it, it's, it's one thing when you're surrounded by this, but there, I can tell by the amount of energy and passion with which you speak about these things that it at some point became personal to you. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that.
1: I I didn't have a a sort of aha moment in, in any of this. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the power of incremental change, Mm. um, that a a good business should be acting as though they're going to be around long enough that if they do everything 5% better each year, that the long run impact of that is enormous. Um, so, I think that goes back a little bit to the whole generational um, kind of lens that 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 we think of as Thomas Creek. So, it's not that that I had this revelatory moment where I was like, "Ooh, like we need we need to be better for the Earth." It's that we kept trying to make the right small steps um, each year, and every now and then you realize that you have the opportunity to do something bigger. And I, I think the the 2020 vintage was a pretty eye-opening moment for everybody out here in California in terms of the, the, the risks of climate change not being something which you're worrying about for like 30 years in the future, but that is, is something you need to worry about right now with the, the fires up and down the state of California, and the heat spikes and the, the drought and all of the, the impacts that those had on the growing season. Um, I, I have trouble imagining anybody making wine in California in 2020 and not coming away from that year thinking, okay, like we've really got to figure this out. So um, I think that's some of it. I think some of it is, of course, the, I mean, I, I think some of it's the team that I work with. I know that these are, these are things that um, that Neil really cares about. Um, Jordy, who's a viticulturist, really cares about, that Nathan, when he was here, like he obviously really cared about this, and certainly that level of energy and concern is 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 infectious in the best possible way. Um, and so I think we all feel like whichever piece of this business that we're a part of, that there are things that we can do to both be better custodians of of the business and and of the the resources that we have the opportunity to apply but also because of the platform that we've been able to build between our blog and our social media and the the just the following that we have that if we if we if we do something that feels like an innovation that's worthwhile like we can figure out ways to 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 get other people watching and listening and, and moving along with us. And I've started to think a lot about the idea of trying to be the pebble that starts the avalanche Mm. Um, because I mean, we can do what we can do on our 270 acres. And we, I think we're obligated to do the best thing that we can, but like if we can inspire other, other companies, other wineries, other, other vineyards, other agriculture, to to make changes across thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres like that's really where it gets exciting yeah
0: yeah no i mean again 270 is nothing to sneeze at <laughs> and, and i i mean i think it can be said that you are doing your you are enacting these solutions at scale and i mean it, it might be some people might sort of be skeptical of like a a 10 acre solution or a five acre solution uh, of any of the things that you are doing. But I think when you get over a hundred acres, it's kind of easy then to jump to a thousand acres and people kind of have to start paying attention, you know, like you are, you are absolutely in the pocket of where you, you have to be taken seriously and, and yet you're leading on so many things that uh, I think are, yeah, if, if they were embraced by the other thousands of acres, hundreds of thousands of acres um, would, would be, yeah, totally world changing. So, yeah, I think and that,
1: that's, mean that that's ultimately, I think the value proposition of, of regenerative organic certified is that like agriculture accounts for something like 31% of the earth's landmass. And if, it can be a part of the solution to these big picture challenges like resource scarcity and climate change and inequality and topsoil loss and and all of that. Like these problems have a chance of getting solved. Right. Um, And if it can't be a part of the solution, these may not be solvable problems. So, I mean, it was, I just saw the press release from the regenerative organic Alliance um, a few weeks ago that said that they now had a million acres worldwide under um, ROC certification, like that's amazing. Um, right. that's, a, that's a really big number. And wine is just a, a, a small piece of that. But the fact that you have somebody of the scale of, of Fetzer Bonterra that has gotten the ROC certification for their 1000 plus acres of their home ranch, like that, like, again, like, I do feel like we have some scale, but there's they're certainly much bigger scale than us. And to see that right. rolled out at even larger scale is, is super exciting. Yeah, no, that's fantastic.
0: And having said all of this, (laughs) um, I think my, my final question, you know, which I mentioned to you in advance is more of just a comment that, you know, I've, I know that you guys have beautiful winemaking, and we haven't talked about the winemaking at all. I'd love for you to talk, you know, about what you do in, in the winery, what, you know, what goes into the winemaking. Um, and my understanding is that, you know, or or the comments that I've heard in the natural wine community, I, I feel like you are left out of the natural wine community, um, despite all of this incredible stuff that you're doing, simply because of, I'm not sure, because of a few interventions in the winery that you know are considered uh, too too intrusive in winemaking, and I'm I'm just at a point in my life where. You know, I see the kind of farming that goes into so much of what is is considered natural wine, and it's so subpar. And in most cases, and in many cases, it's the kind of farm you were talking about where it's practicing but not certified. And part of vineyards are, you know, set aside for this, you know, winemaker, even though the rest of the vineyard's conventional. And maybe, oops, they might have accidentally sprayed that year, but let's not (laughs) talk about that. And yet they get within the the natural wine family. And and I'm just at a point where I'm if you know I don't want to be part of a group that can't include you, you know? <laughs> and and so if if natural wine wants to exclude you, then I don't want to be part of that group. Um but I I wonder if you could just talk about have you experienced any of that? And like can you talk about your winemaking a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I, I have some issues with the whole idea of natural wine um i <laughs> mean I, I guess maybe not the idea the idea of natural wine is great i mean you have, yes yeah. you have you have grapes that are farmed organically biodynamically naturally fermented with native yeasts which we also do we've only ever used native yeasts without a lot of um the the more obvious interventions in a, in a winery so without a lot of new oak or without flavor or additives or nutrients or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Um, The place where the the, the problems I have are two. One is that the idea that there is this hard line between what is natural and what is unnatural, um, (laughs) which strikes me as tremendously counterproductive overall. Um, The other is that it seems like the hill that a lot of natural wine wants to die on is the use of sulfur in winemaking. Right. Um, And as as you know, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, sulfur has two main uses in in fermentations. One is that it, in small quantities, allows fermentation yeasts to be active, but um, discourages the action of various sorts of spoilage yeasts, like um, volatile acidity and and bretanomyces and those sorts of things. The other is that... um, it is an antioxidant. And so it, it, it helps one have, uh, have shelf life. Uh, right. So I, I certainly think that sulfur can and often is overused. We've always kept our sulfur additions below the international organic and the, and the, bi- the international biodynamic standard of a hundred parts per million. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't think, and I don't feel like we should need to apologize for wanting the wines to taste like the grapes and the place and the year, instead of like whatever random spoilage yeast happens to be wandering around the cellar. Um, yeah. And and a lot of the natural wines that I taste, like they, they like I can I, I can actively identify the fermentation mistake like I, I can yeah. tell you what that is that's in there whether it's again whether it's whether it's bread, which I, I don't always hate um, or whether it's volatile acidity or whether it's I mean whatever I mean you can we, we could list them off so yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think the idea of intervening less to show off the character of place and the the grapes and the year is a really wonderful thing um, but I think, that in order for those things to actually show the fermentations need to be clean um, right. otherwise instead of showing off whatever that natural thing is you're showing off again you're showing off a you're showing off a science experiment um, yeah so I don't know I mean I, I have one thing I have found in in defense of the natural wine community is that since we got the regenerative organic certification, I feel like, like whenever I've had a, a chance to present at a at a at a wine bar or restaurant or whatever that sort of identifies with the natural wine movement, like they once I get the chance to explain the regenerative organic piece to them, at that point, they're like, okay, we're in. Like this is good. We we this uh, this fits any possible definition we have of what natural wine should be. Um whether or not that translates to the customer who is Used to tasting something which is kind of cloudy and sour because it's like that's the, the that's the particular like natural wine flavor profile that you sometimes get. Like I don't know, I'm, I'm not there for that particular interaction, but I do feel like since we got that uh, regenerative organic certification, like I haven't I haven't felt any resistance from gatekeepers uh, at those kind of natural wine places that that I did I do think I felt before.
0: Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. So, just being the first—you just had to be the first regenerative organic certified yeah, no winery in the world. Nothing, nothing much. <laughs> yeah, no snow, no sweat, no big deal. Um, well, that's good. I mean, it is good to hear that. And and I, I mean, I, I—it's—it's it's tough. I know there. I, I think there. Are, there are two sides to the natural wine crowd, where I think there are a lot of great people who are farming first and don't want to talk about sulfur and you know their personal choices in the winery to you know be very hands-off take a back seat to the way that they're farming and that's what they want to talk about is like the what's going on in the vineyard um and then there's sort of a scene a, a sort of clicky scene of natural wine that has an in group and an out group and and uh You know, I think there's a lot of natural washing that goes on in that realm, and uh, so I don't. You know, maybe it's just a matter of focusing on you know the right people and the right producers, and and uh, none of this is really an issue. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I mean,
1: I, I do think that that transparency is a is a real thing of value and should be encouraged in 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 wine in general. Yeah. Um, I and mean, I'm looking forward to the changes that are going to be forced by us having to start to do things like ingredient labeling and and that kind of yeah. stuff, which I know there are wineries that are really dreading. Um, I think <laughs> overall, it's probably it's probably going to have a positive impact in the long run. It's just going to be it's going to be distracting in the in the short run, but I think it's a good conversation for us to be having, and I'm, it's one I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, that's a really
0: good point. I, I, you know, voluntarily have been listing ingredients on our labels, um, since we started, since since I started my winery. And, and I now just made the decision to give people an opportunity to go to the website to find a full list of ingredients. Because I found I was having so many conversations with people who thought that because I listed ingredients, I was unlike every other wine that was just made with grapes, you know, and my ingredients lists are like grapes and sulfites, you know, and they're like, Oh, so, you know, it was more like this education because nobody else is doing it that like, I stand out as the one who actually has multiple ingredients. And I'm like, no, look, um, (laughs) it's just, I'm trying to show you how little I put in relative to what, you know, no, no, you're missing my main point.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, So I, yeah. So until, you know, everybody's required to do it. it. It actually, yeah, handicaps those of us who are trying to be transparent and yep. and are proud of the fact that we add so little, um, you know, to to the wine besides grapes. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting. So it will be, I'm very much looking forward to that as well. Should be a fun <laughs> change in the industry and much needed. But also in, in the same vein, like in terms of transparency, I, I fully support and think, Uh, We need a certification for natural wine if people are going to continue to use that and, you know, make, make lists based on that. Like there absolutely should be just a third party certification Um, because otherwise it's, you know, I know what's happening and it's not, it's not transparent and it's not intended to be yeah right not intended to be transparent so right well anyway
1: the, the counterculture doesn't believe in certification anyway so um, <laughs> good, good luck <laughs> right right
0: Do you have any closing things that you wanted to say or or even just you know where can people find out more?
1: right yeah I mean I guess that would be what I would say in closing is that if people are interested in stuff like this we really are we really do try to be as, as transparent as we can and share our own journey and our own struggles and our own discoveries. Um, so if people wanna if people wanna wanna learn more about any of this or 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 engage with us, um, you can find us on just about every every channel, every social media channel. We're at Tobless Creek. Um, our website is com, and our our blog is linked off of there and have lots of really interesting conversations on the blog, whether it's about the, the farming side of stuff, the winemaking side of stuff, the business side of stuff, the regulation and labeling side of stuff. Um, I mean, wine is a very multifaceted sort of business, at least in the state winery is. And, and that's one of the things that keeps me really energized and engaged in, in, in doing this is that like I could be in a totally different aspect of it one day than I am the next. And I, I try to share all of that all of that diversity and all of the different threads that make this up, um, in the way that we we communicate about what we do, and the, and the blog is probably the most kind of the the most transparent piece of all of that. So, yeah, people want to if people want to engage with any of that, I'd, I'd point them there and encourage them to come out and visit. It's a it's a lovely spot, and we try to get people into the vineyard and into the cellar if that's what they want to do. And, and there's no place there's no no better place to do that than than right here where it all happens
0: yeah if you're going to Paso Robles um it should be your you know you guys should be the mecca of Paso Robles <laughs> for anybody traveling there for <laughs> wine tasting definitely definitely worth it I had a lovely time there and it was like a tour and tasting you know of course your wines are fabulous we haven't even really talked about that I just had a bottle of your Cote uh I think it was 2021 um shared with a bunch of neighbors last, uh, just a couple days ago and, um, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Always, you know, reliably beautiful at, and very interesting as well. You do a lot of strange bottlings of, uh, individual things from Chateauneuf, some grapes that some people have never heard of that are really interesting and worth checking out. Um, yeah. So th- there's my little plug. Thank you for doing what you do and, continuing to do it i really am glad you guys are out there
1: fighting that good fight thanks it's uh, it is it's a it's a pleasure to get to do it and it's a fascinating business to be a part of and and i'm still grateful that like in this day and age i get to make an actual physical product that people can then share and and enjoy and hopefully, hopefully enhances their lives. And like, that's, that's a
0: pretty rare thing.
1: And it's something I don't take for granted.
0: Well said. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. I want to end with a, another thank you to Nick Doug Moore for his sponsorship of this episode. Nick is Stoke Wines in Australia. That's stokewines.au for his website, contacting him also check out last week's episode with Nick. He's got an incredible story to share. There's so many ways that you can support this podcast if you're interested, in joy and want to promote this message. You can subscribe via Patreon. You can leave a positive review. That's super helpful. You can follow or subscribe to the feed, you know, whatever that is, so that you're downloading episodes. That's a great thing that we can track. You could send me a note at connect at organicwinepodcast.com. You could tell somebody about it, or like Nick, you could become a sponsor. Contact me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com if you're interested in doing that. And thank you so much for your support. It is why this podcast can happen. Thank you.